Two weeks ago, Elliot preached about personal lament. What happens when things are done to us, and how do we respond and think through um, God and what's going on in those moments? Last week, we looked at Psalm 51, and how do we lament when the consequences we're suffering are because of our rebellion? How do we handle it when, when we've been disobedient and we think through lament uh, and plead for mercy there? Well, today, we're shifting a little bit or broadening a bit to the genre of community lament. Lament. It's not just David weeping because of his sin like it was last week, but a whole people lamenting. And in lamenting, there's a mixture of lamenting over what's been done to them as well as a knowledge of what they have done and the consequences. And just to note, if you're like, man, we're starting this psalm, psalm series and, and three out of four sermons have been about lament, you're like, man, this is like, I didn't think that when we were studying psalms. Two-thirds of the psalms are speaking of lament, so we're trying to hit the genres the way they are in the psalms. So let's get the weight and emotion of a community lament. I'm just trying to pull on some, some ideas which might resonate for us. For the older generation, uh, you may remember, so older, older, uh, the Cold War. Uh, the real threats, the, the bombing idea, like bombing might come to the country, the, the murder of JFK or MLK, leaders, uh, men of stature, and you, you felt the community lament. You remember where you were. I remember talking to my mom. You remember where you were when you heard that person died. Like that kind of like, wow, that's a big deal. For those of us who are alive during the September 11th attacks, the World Trade Center and the Pentagon, you remember everything stopping. Like, what just happened? It was confusing. It was scary. And then there was lamenting as you watched. You're just kind of glued to the screen, watching the images over and over and over. You just kind of feel the weight of it. Locally, on June 17, 2015, the shooting at Mother Emanuel AME Church on Calhoun Street brought much community lament, prayer meetings, and people just walking around days. I remember uh, standing right outside of Emmanuel um, with some other guys and, and speaking the gospel of hope to people, and people just kind of standing there dazed or putting their flowers down or something like that, and it was just like, it was just weird, and it was lamenting, and people just didn't know how to respond, but there was just like guttural, oh, this is really hard. Community lament is a good and wise practice in the midst of devastation, destruction, and tragedy. I'm sure there are plenty of places in Florida right now that are walking in this, pastors and teachers teaching on this even now. It's proper to weep and mourn when a community experiences brokenness in this world, whether it's something being done to them, they're innocent of the cause, or it's even the consequences of sinful choices that they've made, and they're just now realizing the foolishness of those choices. The community laments. So please open up your Bibles to Psalm 74. Psalm 74. This is a psalm that the people of God sing and recount being ransacked by Babylon. Their homes are destroyed. The temple where they worship Yahweh was destroyed. The people are taken from their homes and land and forced to march to Babylon 1,678 miles away. So just picture this. You're, you're being forced to march from Charleston, South Carolina to Denver, Colorado. That's what's going on. No modern shoes, no modern water bottles, no sunscreen, like 
You're forced to march. You're a prisoner. Over 540 hours of walking, men, women, children, young and old, exile. Commentator Derek Kidner entitles this psalm, Havoc. But the, the focus of the psalm is less on the actual exile and the march, and it's more on that, that time period, that time period in Jerusalem, the devastation of seeing the temple of God destroyed. Let's look at Psalm 74. We'll start with the first eight verses. O oh God, why do you cast us off forever? Why does your anger smoke against the sheep of your pasture? Remember your congregation which you have purchased of old, which you have redeemed to be the tribe of your heritage. Remember Mount Zion where you have dwelt. Direct your steps to the perpetual ruins. The enemy has destroyed everything in the sanctuary. Your, foe ha- your foes have roared in the midst of your meeting place. They set up their own signs for signs. They were like those who swing axes in the forest of trees, and all its carved wood they broke down with hatchets and hammers. They set your sanctuary on fire. They profaned the dwelling place of your name, bringing it down to the ground. They said to themselves, we will utterly subdue them. They burned all the meeting places of God in the land. May the Lord bless the reading and preaching of His Word. Point number one today, living through destruction. And here's the question, where is God? Living through destruction, where is God? This psalm is attributed to Asaph. Many think Asaph was maybe not just one guy, but a musical guild, like writers who wrote these songs. But regardless, there is deep emotion, and you get the idea of whoever's pinning this song was there. Like, they saw the devastation happening in the city of Jerusalem. They witnessed the army of Nebuchadnezzar marching into Jerusalem and destroying the city. But notice that the main focus of the lament and questioning is less about their own personal comfort, hey, what happened to my house or something like that, and more the main focus is their identity as a people. This was Judah. This was the capital city of Judah called Jerusalem. It is literally a city on a hill representing God's people and God's presence and God's rule and authority. Jerusalem was built... In 1000 BC by King David, Solomon, his son, built the first temple. But king after king, you see, throughout Judah's history, compromises. Now you have the northern kingdom and southern kingdom split. That's after after, uh, Solomon. So the northern kingdom's Israel, the southern kingdom is Judah. And every king of Israel, like you can just read through uh, the first and second kings, they're all bad. Every one of them. The southern kingdom has good and bad. It's kind of like a little roller coaster you have of the southern kingdom. This is the southern kingdom, and the northern kingdom's already been exiled. 136 years prior, Assyria comes against them. They're gone. They're already in exile. Judah's just like hanging on by a a thread. So we saw when we studied through the book of Isaiah that Assyria actually comes against 
uh, uh, the southern kingdom. They come against Jerusalem. They come against Hezekiah, who's the king. And, and like, it looks really bad. And in one night, God wipes out 185,000 Assyrians. Dead. Like, boom. Who did that, Hezekiah? No. It was God in one night. So then what we find is Hezekiah starts getting a little cocky. So he gets and gathers the, whatever the, the gold and the weapons and all the things that the dead Assyrians have. He puts that back in the treasury, back in the storehouse. And then these Babylonians come. They act like they're from somewhere else. And they come and he shows them everything and boasts about what he has. Look at this. Look at all the temple. Look at all the treasury. Just personal note, you don't send out your password to thieves. Like, you don't show thieves what you have. That's unwise. Just a little pro tip for you. But that's what he does. He welcomes them in. And in welcoming them in, they know all that they are going to take. And so a prophet goes, Isaiah, I believe it is, goes to Hezekiah and explains, like, this is going to be for the destruction of Jerusalem. And here's what Hezekiah says. He is old, and he is selfish, and he is short-sighted. And he, had, he has a short-sighted relief. Here's what he says. There will be peace and security in my day. He doesn't care about the next generation. He doesn't care that he just set up the next generation for failure. Friends, the relief of delayed destruction of one generation is the community, community lament of the next generation. The, delayed, the relief of delayed destruction of one generation is the community lament of the next generation. So let's note, friends, the decisions we make affect our children and our children's children. They matter. And here's the cry of that next generation. Verse 1, Oh God, why do you cast us off forever? Why does your anger smoke against the sheep of your pasture? The psalmist is referring to God's people as sheep. He's known as, Psalm 23, he's known as the good shepherd. He's known as the shepherd of the sheep of the flock of God. And yet the people have wandered off into spiritual danger. And now they're facing the consequences of their rebellion. Now they're turning and shouting at the shepherd. They, they wander from God. They wander toward destruction. And now they're yelling back at the shepherd, why did you do this to us? They wander. They blame God. That's a pretty normal pattern for humans. Why aren't you helping us? Friends, there are very real consequences for very real sin. But, but the hard thing is that there are community consequences for community sins. There are consequences when the community is led wrong or gone in wrong directions, and you may have stuff come against you even though those decisions weren't specifically made by you. So there's community sin and there's community lament. And this is a song that is sung grieving at God's seeming abandonment of His people. And verses 2 through 8 actually focus on the destruction of the temple. The destruction of the temple takes center stage. Look at verse 2, Mount Zion. That's specifically speaking of the temple, the, the dwelling place of God, which the temple is known for. Verse 3, the enemy destroys everything in the sanctuary. Verse 4, the foes roared in the meeting place. 
Verse 4, the signs of the enemy, possibly statues or banners of false worship to false gods, is now put up in Yahweh's temple. Verse 5 and 6, hammers and axes are swung in the temple, destroying sacred objects, carved wood, ornate fixtures. If you remember studying the tabernacle in the temple, it's supposed to be like the meeting place of God, so it kind of looked Eden-ish. There's a lot of trees and ornate things that make it look Eden-ish. It's supposed to remind people of Eden, God dwelling with his people. It's supposed to point forward to the restored Eden. And so this beautiful temple, all the carvings, an axe is taken, taken to all of them. It's like an orc-like army coming and, and just tearing everything apart. Verse 7, the sanctuary is set on fire. Verse 7, God's dwelling place is profaned. So as you read the first eight verses of Psalm 74, you just get a, a heaviness, the weight of grief, the weight of lament. But we must ask this question. Why is this temple central to community lament? Why is this temple central to community lament? Isn't it just a building? In the Old Testament, the temple was not just a building. The temple was the very place where God met with his people. It's the very place where the people knew who they were. There's identity here. We are God's people because God meets with us here. It represented God's very presence to them. It was a place where they would offer sacrifices and atonement for sin. When Solomon dedicates this temple in 2 Chronicles 7, fire comes down from heaven. Like the priests can't even go in. The people who like work there can't go in. And all the people bow their face to, to the ground. They're like, oh man, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. This is God's temple. This is God's dwelling place. We are his people. This is a huge deal. So imagine if on September 11th, 2001, if for some reason, and this didn't happen, but like those towers that were plowed into by planes represented how we communicated with God, how atonement was made for us to be in right relationship with God. Like the very thing we centered our lives on was gone. That's kind of the feel that they have. Destruction has come, and we have no access to God now. We are cut off. It would be devastating. But the question from the psalmist is a good one. Why do you cast us off? Or we could say, where are you, God? Now, other Old Testament writings tell us where God is in the midst of this moment. Jeremiah 51 calls Nebuchadnezzar God's hammer. Jeremiah 25.9 says, I will send for Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant. And I will bring them against the land of its, and its inhabitants, against all the surrounding nations. God is in the midst of the storm, friends. The exile is judgment. It is God's hand. The temple is destroyed because of the sins of the people. But if this doesn't sit well with you, we've got to understand that God's redemptive story is not complete in Psalm 74 or Jeremiah or in the exile. 
Friends, for there is another temple that will be destroyed for the sins of the people. 750 years later, Jesus Christ walks on the scene and he tells the religious leaders this, destroy this temple and in three days, I will take it up again. He was speaking of the temple of his body, his very presence being the presence of God to the people of God. Now, there was community lament at the cross as well as jeering of the Son of God. But lament does not stay lament. You see, what the kings of Jerusalem in the Old Testament failed to do, what the people of God in the Old Testament failed to do, Jesus Christ did. He lived a perfect life, died for sins, and rose from the dead, not just bringing people to a physical temple, but making them the dwelling place with him. 1 Corinthians 3.16, Paul says this, Do you not know that you, plural, y'all, all y'all, do you not know you all are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. Friends, the presence of God is with his people, is with his church. You, church, are the temple of God. You are the dwelling place of God on earth. And you might be like, I don't even get that. You don't, and I don't either. It's like, psh. Like, this is crazy if you take all the stuff from the Old Testament. Now we understand we are that temple. Paul even says in the next verse, 1 Corinthians 3.17, if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. How does Paul know that? Well, Paul tried to when he was Saul, and he's going and trying to ransack the church and kill Christians and all this kind of stuff, and he goes to Damascus, and he's going to do that again. And Jesus shows up, and Jesus says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute, not my church, why do you persecute my church? That's not what he said. He said, why do you persecute me? Jesus so affiliates with his church, the identity with his church, we're united to Christ as his church. To mess with God's church is to mess with God. Oh, friends, we've got to be careful I've got to be careful. You've got to be careful how we treat God's people, how we treat God's church. God's presence is with and in his people. So we may feel exiled right now. We may feel like life is out of control. It's chaos. It's struggle. But if we know Christ, his presence is with us. I will never leave you or forsake you. Lo and behold, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. Your sins have been paid for. Our community lament doesn't have to stay lament. It turns into community rejoicing, even in the midst of hard situations. But the understanding of Jesus and salvation in Christ's church is a long way off for the writer of Psalm 74. He will express trust as he continues this passage, but first he's still in the middle of struggle. Point number two, living in exile. How long, O oh God? Verse nine, we do not see our signs. There's no longer any prophet. 
And there is none among us who knows how long. How long, O God, is the foe to scoff? Is the enemy to revile your name forever? Why do you hold back your hand, your right hand? Take it from the fold of your garment and destroy them. Now in verse 4, we saw that the Babylonians set up their signs of worshiping false gods in the temple. And verse 9 says, we do not see our signs. We no longer see our lampstands. We no longer see the bread of presence, the rod of Aaron, the altar of incense, gone. Some are stolen. Some are destroyed. Those things in the temple that represented God's past provision are all gone. Christopher Ash says that the psalmist in verse 9 feels this, there is no visible indication of covenant faithfulness of God. That's scary. There is no, to this psalmist, at this moment, there is no visible indication of covenant faithfulness of God. The altar's gone, the Ark of the Covenant's no more, the mercy seat has been destroyed. There is no prophet. God is not telling them what is to happen or why. There is just a terrible silence. Friends, imagine this silence. You are the people of God with the temple of God and the prophets of God speaking the word of God. And, and we know the cycle from, from Judges and 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel. God's people honor God for a while. And then they take him for granted. Then they go after other things. And there's consequences of sin. Then they repent and God comes back to them and restores them. That's the cycle. But that cycle seemingly stops here. And the psalmist feels it. The people have rebelled and they feel the consequences. But this time God does not come to their rescue. This time there is devastation. This time there's a maddening silence. It's like that three or four-year-old child in the store or at home. They don't see their parent and they yell, Mom? Dad? No answer. It's that vulnerability. It's that confusion. Derek Kidner says, The lack of any sign of thy favor, any sign of favor, the lack of any sign of favor, let alone any word through a prophet, are deeper wounds than the enemies. Their relationship with God and God's absence and God's silence is a, is a deeper wound than all that Babylon has done to them. These are deep wounds. And they're asking, what is going on? Where are you, God? How long, O oh Lord? But verses 10 and 11 seem to, to turn things a bit. It's not just about the Jerusalem temple being destroyed. The psalmist is upset about God's name being dragged through the mud. Look at 10 and 11. How long, O oh God, is the foe to scoff, is the enemy to revile your name forever? Why do you hold back your hand, your right hand? Take it from the fold of your garment and destroy them. There's a begging, a pleading, take them down, God. What are you waiting for? And we know that God will take down Babylon. Persia will crush them, but not in the timing of God's people. Not in the timing of God's people. Not before 70 years in exile happens. A generation that rebelled is gone. 
So the question, how long, O oh God, is a good one, is an appropriate question in the midst of personal lament and community lament, but the grounding of that question comes when we realize that God is authoring a story and we see but a small portion of that story. We see but a small picture. God is writing his redemptive plan in a million ways that we cannot see and we cannot know. At this moment, three things are going on. He is simultaneously showing consequences of sin to Judah, storing up wrath for Babylon, and pointing to future fulfillment in Christ, and a million other things. God will indeed take his hand from the fold of his garment. That hand of God the Son will battle the main enemy, Satan. That hand will be taken from the garment and will touch the leper, heal the blind man, touch the bleeding woman, raise the child from the dead, oppose money changers, and drive out demons. That hand will be taken from the fault and it will be pierced through with a nail and raised on a cross and die in the place of his people. That hand, that prayer for, for help will come as he is raised from the dead. There's an empty tomb. He ascends and he's seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. That hand and the garment will be extended. But God's timing and God's answers are very different from our expectations or the expectations of the author of Psalm 74. So we can pray, how long, O Lord, in our lament, but it must be undergirded with a knowledge that God's ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. So our prayer, how long, O Lord, can be done in faith or it can be done in accusation. Same words, but way different heart. So how we pray, how long, O Lord, makes all the difference. Years ago, on days that were too hot or too cold for my wife and me to work out outside, we had this amazing DVD by Billy Banks called Tybo. Tybo got really popular, and Billy would yell at you the whole time, and you're just like punching, 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 doing these like mini squats, punching, punching, punching. And about 20 to 30 minutes into punching and kicking and punching and kicking and punching and kicking, he would start yelling at you, get your eyes up, get your eyes up. He knew if, if you're slumped down because you're exhausted, unlike Billy who's cut and ripped and everybody else who's on the screen, you're not. And you're like, oh. He says, get your eyes up because he knows if you're slouched down, if you're not doing the correct form, it's going to hurt your muscles. It's not going to work the muscles you need to, and you're going to lose focus. You're going to stop doing it at the reps, at the pace, the way he wants you to do it. The psalmist in this passage knows God. He knows the truth, and he's looking down at the rubble of the temple, the devastation that's around him, and that may make him lose his focus. Here's what he needs. He needs to get his eyes up. There's a bigger picture of who God is. Point number three is this remembering our king, remembering our king. Look at this. 
Verse 12 is amazing. In the midst of verses 1 through 11 that we just talked about, this devastation, look at verse 12. Yet God, my King, is from of old, working salvation in the midst of the earth. Let's keep going. You divided the sea by your might. You broke the heads of the sea monsters on the waters. You crushed the heads of Leviathan. You gave him as food for the creatures of the wilderness. You split open the springs and the brooks. You dried up ever-flowing streams. Yours is the day. Yours also the night. You have established the heavenly lights and the sun. You have fixed all the boundaries of the earth. You have made summer and winter. Whoa! There's a change here, a shift here. He gets his eyes up. Who's in charge? Who's sitting on his throne? God is king. But not just God is king. It's not just a distant reality. He says, God is my king. God is my king. This changes from from pain and perplexity to confidence and faith. It's like a solo starts ringing out among a dirge. Remember, this is a song. So they're singing it, and like this one choir boy over here starts singing differently. Instead of minor notes, he, he starts belting out major notes. He starts belting out hope in the midst of this dirge. God is my king. In the midst of struggle, we must remember who is king, who is working salvation. Even if circumstances look like the opposite of salvation, God is the one working salvation, friends. This is one of the reasons I love reading Christian biography. Like because we're not the only ones going through stuff. We can sometimes think, that, oh, we went through COVID, we go through this, we go through that. You read Christian biography and you just realize every generation has been going through lots of stuff for a long time. And how God uses those hard, really hard circumstances over and over. Recently reading about John Calvin, he's kicked out of Geneva harshly and then brought back. And he doesn't want to go back. And he's like, I think God wants me to go back. He's like, but I don't want to. And how God uses that. Or Jim Elliott's death and how it changes Elizabeth Elliott's life, but then changes an entire tribe in Ecuador for salvation. I've been reading um, George Whitfield's biographies again. Uh, if you, there's these two big biographies uh, by Arnold Dallimore on George Whitfield. I read one of them about 20 years ago, and apparently I found this out recently. I got about halfway through the next one and must have just stopped. I just like ran out of gas. I don't care about George Whitfield anymore. Like I've read 700 pages, good. The rest of his life's fine. But I just picked it up again recently and I remembered why I enjoyed the first part of it. So two nights ago, George Whitfield's preaching. He's an open-air preacher. He has some bad things about him and some really good things. So he's preaching, and there's this guy opposing him that's also a pastor, doesn't like that people are becoming followers and stuff like that. And people start throwing rocks at Whitfield. During the middle of the sermon, he gets hit in the face, and he's bleeding, and his opposing other pastor is laughing at him. I was like, that's never happened to me. That's kind of nice. I've never had people hit me with rocks in the face. Last night I'm reading it, and he's talking about, the author's talking about how Whitfield helped John Wesley. And I was like, well, this will be interesting because those guys kind of did that some. So John Wesley and George Whitfield, not always a good thing. But how George Whitfield helped uh, John Wesley. Well, here's what happened to Wesley. I never knew this. John Wesley 
had a, a lady that he was very interested in, but his brother Charles Wesley did not think this lady was a good idea for him. So Charles gets involved, and Charles has a friend who also likes this lady, and he makes sure that lady and that friend get married. So they get married, he does the wedding, and then John finds out. I was like, oh man, there's like drama in the whatever, 1700s. And, and this is all going on. And here's what Whitfield does. He goes and he just cries with John. He just goes and cries with him. God's used John Wesley and George Whitfield and even Charles, uh, Charles Wesley. And they end up sort of reconciling. That guy who ends up marrying the girl that John Wesley likes, like that's an awkward relationship for the rest of their life because John's kind of in charge of him. You got the girl. It's difficult. Friends, there's difficulty. There's struggle. It's sometimes, I bet it felt like to John Wesley the opposite of salvation. He was strong. He wanted to marry this lady, and then his, he's opposed by his brother and manipulated. Like, what the heck's going on there? Like, you can just kind of feel like, ah, that's wrong. Or the death or the sins of being opposed and yet, God is not a distant king. And yet, verse 12 still applies to John or John Wesley or, or George Whitfield or John Calvin or Elizabeth Elliot. In that moment, you, God, yet God, my king, is from of old, working salvation in the midst of the earth. Verse 13 begins talking about God as creator. In the midst of destruction, suffering, and lament, we must remember that God is Savior. He's working salvation, but He's also Creator. The sea, the brook, the stream, the sun, the seasons, all creation points to the goodness of God. Verses 13 and 14 don't just point to the goodness of creation, but also the chaos that God puts into order. Friends, chaos put in order. Does your life feel like chaos? Chaos put into order. Maybe in your timing, maybe not. God overcomes chaos. He ultimately comes, uh, overcomes the chaos of darkness, danger, evil, and death. God is over evil powers and has them on a leash. We see him working in a million ways. The Red Sea splits. And that Red Sea is both rescue for God's people and destruction for the Egyptians. The, the Jordan River splits, both providing the promised land for God's people and destroying idolatry and those who are committing idolatry beyond the Jordan. God uses creation, overcomes evil powers in and through creation. And God overcomes the evil powers symbolized by the sea monsters and Leviathan, satanic attack upon God and his people, and yet the head of Leviathan is crushed on the cross. The figurative monsters here are real enemies. God overcomes all of them, sin, Satan, and death. And so what do we do with that knowledge? We keep our eyes up. Creation is sometimes whispering and sometimes shouting of God's power and control. But here's what we do know. He is king and he is on his throne. And he's not just a distant king. He is my king. In the midst of lament, friends, we must remember who our king is. 
And I love how the psalm takes the final transition. It goes from asking where God is to how long this painful present is going to continue to verse 12 through 17, recounting his power and control. The psalmist speaking truth to himself, and then it leads him finally to prayer. Point number four, appealing to the king. Appealing to the king. Look at verse 18. Remember this, O Lord, how the enemy scoffs and the foolish people reviles your name. Do not deliver the soul of your dove to the wild beasts. Do not forget the life of your poor forever. Have regard for the covenant, for the dark places in the land are full of habitations of violence. Let not the downtrodden turn back in shame. Let the poor and needy praise your name. Arise, O God, defend your cause. Remember how the foolish scoff at you all the days. Do not forget the clamor of your foes, the uproar of those who rise against you, which goes up continually. James Hamilton says this, the logic of this psalm is simple. God has made promises to his people, promises that he's able to keep. The natural thing to do then is to ask him to remember his promises and to act in accordance with his character. In Psalm 18 through 23, Asaph calls those who oppose God and oppose God's people enemies who scoff, foolish people, wild beasts, habitations of violence, clamor of foes. These Babylonians rebel against God even though they're being used of God to bring judgment. And the prayer pleads with God to remember His people, remember His heart for them. Where the enemies are wild beasts, the psalmist said, God's people are a dove, your dove. Where the enemies are full of violence, God's people are downtrodden, poor, and needy. But it's not based on the dove-like qualities or being poor and downtrodden, that is the main appeal. It's not just look at us, feel sorry for us, God. No, here's the appeal. Remember this, O Lord. Remember this, Yahweh, how the enemy scoffs and the foolish people revile your name. Verse 21, let the poor and needy praise your name. Verse 22, do not forget the clamor of your foes, the uproar of those who rise against you or against your name. The appeal of Asaph is this, God, your name is at stake. Let these people fear your name. Let us know the goodness and mercy of God. Let them know the terror and judgment of God. Please, Lord, arise, O God, and defend your cause. Arise, O God, and have regard for the covenant that you made. That's the prayer in this devastating moment of Psalm 74 being penned. And what we know almost 3,000 years later is that God does arise in ways that the psalmist would not comprehend. Nebuchadnezzar begins to show favor for these exiled Jews who are in his kingdom. The Persians take over, as I mentioned earlier, and King Cyrus inherits these Jews. He wasn't probably planning that, but they're there in the kingdom that he takes over of Babylon. So he's the Persian king. And God stirs Cyrus to return the Jews to Jerusalem, 
But not only that, Cyrus returns all the things from the temple that had been taken that we just read about back to the Jews. But not only that, there's King Darius who helps Israel rebuild the temple and pays for it. But not only that, King Artaxerxes shows such favor to Ezra and God's people, he gives them silver and wheat and wine and oil. And all God's people are provided for in this provision of the temple. But not only that, God had regard for his covenant with Abraham that all families of the earth would be blessed through his line. He had regard for the covenant of Moses that a prophet would arise. He had regard for the covenant of David that a king would sit on his throne forever. The prayer of Psalm 74 of a king, of a savior, of a creator, remembering his people was fulfilled, is still being fulfilled, and will ultimately be fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Friends, in Revelation 21, it speaks of the new heavens, new earth, the remade earth, the new Eden that the temple was to represent. And it says this, we will be his people and he will be our God and we will dwell with him forever. But it also speaks of the idea of the temple. Remember, Psalm 74 is all about lamenting the temple is gone. Our presence with, with God is gone. And here's what Psalm, uh, I mean, sorry, Revelation 21, 22 says. This is at the end of the book of the, last book of the Bible. And there will be no temple in the city. For its temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. We will be with God. There's not going to be a need of temple because everywhere's temple. Everywhere is the presence of God in the new heavens, new earth. We don't need an atoning sacrifice again. We've already got it through Jesus Christ. We are with him. He is our God and we are his people. And there's no more grieving, no more pain, no more struggle, no more where are you, God? How long, O oh Lord? It is only us with God and his people forever. That's the hope. That's the answer to this prayer. That Asaph had no clue what he was praying. We have no clue what we're praying half the time. But the Spirit intercedes for us. Jesus sits on the throne interceding for us even now. So this song is corporate lament, teaching us to grieve, but grieve with hope. Or as Paul says, sorrowful yet always rejoicing. So I think we should end today considering what should we be grieving in our day and age? This is what the psalmist was grieving. What should we be grieving as God's people in this time, in this place? How should we look at our culture in the areas of sin and rebellion and pray to God and plead with God for change and pray for, with hope and pray and ask God to defend his name? Scholar Christopher Ashe gives a list, like eight or ten things. I'm just picking out some of them that we're going to go over in just a moment. And we're going to break up in groups and just spend time praying. Your group can pick one or, or two of these things, and you just pray. And we're going to pray, God, please stir this up. You're our king. Use Psalm 74 as a prayer. Lord, remember your covenant. Remember your people. Lord, as our king, please change this area in our hearts, change this area in our nation. So here's a few of the things that will be on the screen that Ash has that he thinks we as a church need to corporately lament. 
We need to corporately lament theological compromise. We need to corporately lament the culture of death we have. And we are to corporately lament the culture of celebrity. Let me explain all three of those. Corporately lamenting over theological compromise. There are many churches, so claiming to preach the gospel that do not. Claiming to honor God's word as the inerrant word of God and do not follow it, do not preach it, do not do anything with it. We need to repent and lament over that. Biblical doctrine not being taught that Jesus is king, God is sovereign, the scriptures are true, hell is real. There's theological compromise and a prosperity gospel that just takes over where sufferers have no hope, where suffering is promoted as only being consequences of sin. The prosperity gospel teaches that God is like this big cosmic slot machine. You put in your good deeds and and you get reward. You give your money, you get good prosperity. It's materialism, cloaked in Bible, and it's a lie. So we pray and lament about theological compromise. We pray and lament about the culture of death that we live in. We live in a culture of death, abortion, euthanasia, suicide, our major issues in our country, shootings, stabbings, and violence that destroy image bears are not, like, uncommon. Like, yeah, that happened again. You turn on the news, yep, it happened again. There's a culture of death, of image bearers not being treated as image bearers. And then a culture of celebrity. That one I brought up because I was like, that's an interesting one. That was on Ash's list. Where the goal of many is simply to be famous, to be known. The desire is not to be faithful to God, but to be featured, to be followed, to be famous. Christopher Ash says the culture of celebrity erodes humility and delays maturity. You think about that person who's always worried about what they're posting or their selfie. Is there maturity there? Uh-uh. Like there's a delayed maturity when all we are, we're absorbing ourselves, when we curve in ourselves over and over. There's a delaying of maturity. Friends, you go into schools, there's delayed maturity right now. My wife is teaching uh, 18-year-olds, and we're like, are 18-year-olds different at the college she's at? There's a delayed maturity. Now, I'm thankful our, I'm not talking to our youth group here because you're pushed to grow and love God with all your heart and to be mature and walk in the new life that God's given you. But friends, we live in a land of delayed maturity, and it's a culture of celebrity. Let us grieve that. Let us grieve that. So we're going to stand now. Let's break in groups. It might be four, five, ten people in your group. Make it small enough where people can pray. This is where you got to stand up, stretch a little bit, yawn if you have to, that's fine. And gather with a group of people and um, just spend time praying. You can use Psalm 74 as kind of a template if you want. And we're just going to spend time praying about one of these, maybe two, as we end today. I'll close this in prayer in just a few minutes. Sorry, I forgot.
As we continue to pray and we finish praying, let's sing together. So you can keep praying or join in and singing when you guys are done. My King is from of old, working salvation in the midst of the earth. Lord, even as we lament over theological compromise, the culture of death and culture of celebrity, Lord, where those are in us, Lord, purge them by your Spirit. We're not just praying for the culture. We're also praying for ourselves, for our church. Lord, purify us. We pray by the power of your spirit. We thank you that there will be a day that we will no longer lament. Lamentations is for now. It is for this life that is a mist here today and gone tomorrow. So Lord, we want to lament appropriately where we're supposed to, but we also want to turn our gaze upward, keep our eyes up, to our King who sits on His throne, who intercedes for us right now in the midst of good weeks and hard weeks. You are praying for us. Oh God, You are so kind. God, You're so kind to allow us to be together as your people, the temple of your spirit. You're so kind to allow us to to study your word, to sing praises to you, to hear the voices of other saints testifying that you're king and knowing each other's stories in small parts and the large parts that we are fighting for faith even in the midst of expressing faith. Oh, Lord, we believe. Help our unbelief. And let us walk in the new life as we leave today to glorify and honor you in the workplace, in the homes, in the schools, to grow in the new life you give. In Jesus' name, amen. Church family, love you guys. We will see you at community group or at the Sangaree Community Day. Please sign up for that. We will see you next week.